Welcome to Voices, the EISA podcast, the space for cutting-edge research in the discipline of international relations and the audible companion to EISA, the European International Studies Association. This podcast sets the stage for deeper insights into award-winning papers, books and theses, as much as it provides a room for the critical engagement with key concepts in political and sociological thought. Voices, the EISA podcast. Feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible. My name is Judith Koch. I'm a PhD student at the University of Sussex and the production manager of this podcast. Please welcome our today's host, Beste Ijlein, Senior Lecturer in Political Science at the University of Amsterdam and EISA board member. Welcome everyone to today's EISA Voices podcast with Dr. Ingrid Bode on practice approaches to international relations. Um, I would like to first introduce our speaker. Um, Ingrid Bode is Associate Professor of International Relations at the University of Southern Denmark. She is also the Principal Investigator of an ERC starting grant project on autonomous weapon systems and international norms. The acronym is AUTONORMS. Uh, Ingrid is furthermore uh, Associate Editor of Global Society, Journal of Interdisciplinary International Relations. Her uh, research agenda covers the area of peace and security uh, with a theoretical focus combining practice theories and constructivist international relations. Welcome Ingrid, uh, we are very happy to host you today uh, at our uh, podcast. Thank you so much Bessa, very happy to be here. Um, so I would like to kick off our conversation with a broad question. Um, what does the so-called practice term mean in international relations? Um, I'm asking this question because IR scholarship, uh, for example, constructivist research, has long emphasized the importance of practices uh, in shaping the social world. And here I'm particularly referring to Van structuration theory. So what is the practice turn and how does it relate to and or differ from existing theorizations and empirical analysis of practices in international relations? Yeah, I mean, that's an absolutely fair question, right? Uh, because we've seen a number of turns in IR recently, but what do they actually add in terms of new stuff, right, for us to analyze? I think um, in terms of the practice turn, there are a number of important implications if you look at practices. So first of all, I think this kind of um, theory stands for a mid-level way of theorizing that is not as kind of totalizing or restrictive as the big um, grand theories of IR, like constructivism or like all the isms, basically. So um, so I think this kind of signals, right, that IR theory is changing towards this kind of mid-level theorizing and the practice turn as a representation of that. And um, by focusing on practices, I also think that the scholars associated with the practice turn do not present a coherent theory of IR as such, but rather the notion of practices kind of provides us with a sensitizing concept for understanding how phenomena in IR are constituted, how they persist or how they remain stable, but also how they change. So, um, of course, constructivists have talked about practices for a long time, and they appear very prominently in constructivist scholarship, such as Wendt, as you mentioned. Um, but I think that, first of all, they're only one of the many concepts for constructivists in IR, and not really the most prominent. So um, if you compare that to kind of concepts such as identity or norms, 
they have triggered a lot more attention for constructivist scholars, I think. And so practices are kind of in there, but they don't really play, I think, a significant role in terms of um, putting out these arguments for empirical investigation in the same way that identity or norms have, have done in the past. And as a result of that, I think uh, while they are there in the kind of the theoretical reflections or the meta theory of constructivism, they are not actually properly conceptualized um, as a concept that could be usable for, for us as scholars. So I think you would be hard pressed even to find the definition of practices in early constructivist writing, um, although they are mentioned uh, in, in many different contexts. So I think what, what practice theory adds to IR then is really putting practices, which, which I define or like to define quite broadly as patterned actions in social context. So they really put this at the center of how we think about IR. And kind of in doing so, and as IR also likes to do, following, um, of course, other social sciences um, that have already gone in that direction. And I think by conceptualizing practices in various different ways, so kind of highlighting practices of doing, for example, as opposed to just practices of saying, and the role of kind of reflexive or background knowledge, this allows for um, an empirical analysis uh, focusing on the process of how international relations are made. So I think this kind of procedural element is really important for, for practice uh, theories. And I should also say that I, I kind of prefer the term practice theories in the plural, as opposed to sometimes you also see international practice theory uh, in the singular, or also the practice term, right? Um, and this, I think, because one of the advantages that I associate with practices is really this, this their plurality, the way that they're quite diverse, and they're also potential for, um, there's also potential for openness uh, across the different social sciences. So if, if, like a couple of months ago, I've come across a very interesting uh, paper. I think it's still a working paper written by Charlotte Epstein and Ole Weber, uh, criticizing the turn to turns in IR, right? So I don't know if, if maybe some of the listeners will also have seen this paper in different iterations at conferences. And um, I thought it was a very convincing argument, right? In the way that, um, that uh, on the one hand, right, uh, the, the, the turns were supposed to kind of liberate IR theory a bit, right, by moving away from the grand theories and being more critical, especially for critical IR scholars. But they found that in, 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 in a way, this can also lead to kind of um, um, adverse tendencies of theorizing. So for example, they, um, and you can see this in the practice turn as well, I think. So one of the critiques that they had is that turns can make, um, again, kind of can lead to, to only certain uh, authors being drawn upon as kind of the key theorists of this turn and, and kind of thereby limiting the number of people who could maybe become sources of inspiration for theory in IR. So in the practice turn, we've seen a lot of work, of course, um, on Pierre Bourdieu, right? Uh, especially Bourdieu, but also Boltanski, I think, is quite a second, second most prominent practice scholar in IR. And these are important works, and I've also worked with Bourdieu in the past. I'm not saying um, we should dismiss Bourdieu. But I also think that it's important to think it's, it's not all about Bourdieu, right? So, so they're actually a lot of other connection points for scholars interested in, in practices, right? In feminist scholarship, for example, in STS or science and technology studies. So I, I kind of dislike this kind of canonical tendency, I think, that goes, goes hand in hand sometimes with these, with these turns as Epstein and uh, Weber also theorize. So, because I think it's, it's, it's kind of useful to think about the broad heritage of practice theories um, in the social sciences and how we can draw upon that um, as I ask scholars. 
Yeah, thank you for these um, very elaborate and clear definitions and explanations, uh, Inglet. Uh, and also, I really appreciate uh, your call for acknowledging the variety of approaches uh, to practices rather than limiting our studies to uh, uh, big names. So uh, moving to the second question, uh, this is about uh, one of the key questions that uh, IR research addresses, which is the level of analysis. So we, uh, as IR scholars, are continuously confronted with the question of where to look at for the systematic inquiry of the phenomena. And this concerns conceptual, methodological, and empirical decisions. So as a dynamic research agenda, practice theories have foregrounded the micro level as an object of inquiry in its own right. Um, critics, however, argue that practices are not um, more than a site for the automatic translation of policies adopted at the micro level or the meso level. And this has also implications for how we understand and study uh, implementation. So in your studies, you also dealt with the question uh, of implementation. Uh, so therefore, my question is twofold. How does the practice turn approach the level of analysis problem in IR? And secondly, how do these debates address the question of implementation? Yeah, th thank you for that. Um, I think it's an interesting question because we, we we hear less and less about the agency structure problem, but that doesn't mean that it's not still a problem. Um, and uh, I think in practice theories, how I'd see it being approached is that they, in a way, they, they occupy a middle ground, um, again, so kind of between kind of um, individualism and holism. So they're really in this kind of space where lots of constructive theories find themselves so that they're not privileging agency or structure. Um, but in more concrete terms, I think um, practice for, 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 for practices really unite kind of agency and structure in one concept. I think Bourdieu, and there we are again, um, actually called practices at the meeting point of agency and structure um, because they're not uh, completely attached to either agents or structures, but instead really combine the two and how they, how they play out. So I think practices in order to study them, you really need to understand kind of characteristics of agents, so for example, their their kind of their personalities, their backgrounds, professionally, socially, um, but also then you you need to understand opportunities and uh, restrictions inherent to social structures, and then practices and how they play out really result from how the actions of um, of the people performing them are perceived and constructed within social environments, and in this way create meanings, entities, or power relations. And I think this what I find interesting about this approach is that it kind of has a, a very dynamic perspective on the mutual constitution of agency and structure. Because in the past, we've always seen this kind of bracketing, like as the most famous method maybe, right? So that we kind of focus on one thing and then the other, but then it's always kind of difficult to bring the two together. And then uh, first of all, as a second point, it's always very, um, many scholars then still end up emphasizing one over the other. Um, and I think practice theories really kind of, um, maybe the practice concept enables you to not emphasize either, but focus on how they interplay in practices and the performance of practice. And I think they therefore kind of push a very relational understanding of social interaction as the place where meaning is stabilized or newly created. So I think uh, in terms of how this relates to implementation, I think we can quickly see that this creates a certain uh, dynamic perspective on, on implementation. So in highlighting, I think, the procedural nature of, of, of social interaction by itself, practices look at the actual process um, of how things are constituted. And this helps us, I think, to, uh, to argue that also seemingly kind of stable or static configurations or processes of implementation still need work in order to be maintained. 
and may in the process of how this work is done in different ways by different actors also be subject to change. So I think that's kind of um, the yeah the, the approach to implementation that I would take as a practice scholar, right? So that uh, that is actually uh, it it may seem very static, but that still then depends, right, on the practices of certain actors maintaining it. Um, um, thank you, Ingrid. Um, at the beginning, uh, you rightly pointed out that constructivists have long uh, interested in the question of norms. Uh, but we see that the normative dimension of international politics is also uh, very prevalent uh, in uh, practice approaches. So my next question will be about that uh, and also in relation to your previous and ongoing research, uh, which aims to combine um, uh, an understanding of the role of norms in IR and practice approaches. And one of your key empirical focus is uh, the United Nations and peacekeeping norms. Uh, you argue that there is a wide gap uh, between the rather established normative understandings of peace and security on the one hand and the actual norm implementation. You then integrate the concept of norm ambiguity to explain this gap. Uh, so my question is, what does norm uh, ambiguity mean and what's the added value of st studying practices to highlight uh, the significance of norms uh, in international relations? Yes, yeah, so for me, um, practice theories and critical norm research in IR really make for a very logical and natural combination. Um, so I was, um, it's one of these gaps where you think, okay, uh, where, why have people not studied this earlier on? Uh, and, that because, and I think they're, they're combined so well because their theoretical agendas really speak to each other and they can help each other out in complementary ways. And I will just explain what I mean by that. So critical norm research, I think, is, is mostly associated nowadays with contestation and localization scholarship. Um, so, um, so processes that I think both heavily rely on the notion of norm ambiguity, actually. So I'm not, I'm not the first person, of course, to identify that. This is also present in this, in this established lines of scholarship. So I think Antivina's fabulous theorizations of norms as meaning and use um, show that what, what norms are really is context-dependent and actor-dependent and can change over time. And this is because international norms, as a result of, of diplomatic and political negotiations that led to them being phrased or formulated in certain ways in the first place, they are ambiguous by default. So, um, so in diplomatic studies, you often hear uh, about this in relation to the concept of I think it's called constructive um, ambiguity, right? So that certain things are, are phrased in such a way that, that they can be accepted um, uh, by, by a large number of states. But, but that always means, right, that there's a certain room for interpretation that is left open uh, to whoever will then implement or, or work with that norm or even be socialized in that norm in different ways. And for scholars like Vina or like the people who focus on contestation, this then leads to contestation, right? So contestation always being kind of um, a voicing of opposition uh, to the substance of certain norms or to them being applied in certain ways or to them being valid in certain contexts. And this is kind of where I depart from, from this scholarship um, because I don't think that actors necessarily contest norms. So as, as the ambiguity is kind of part of the very fabric of the norm, actors can uh, hold very different understandings of what the norm means and how to best implement it without contesting it. So I think that basically when we when we think about whether there is a kind of a shared kernel or fragment or center of a norm, I think that is quite minimal, actually. And, and much of what the norm means in practice is, is ambiguous. And I think these different understandings that actors can continue to hold vis-a-vis -vis certain norms then come out in their implementation practices. 
Um, but for me, this is not really a process of contestation because the actors often do not even intend to, to question the validity of the norm or whether it's applicable, but they, but they just have a different understanding of what the substance of the norm means. So to use an example, uh, just to illustrate this a bit, um, in my research, um, I've looked at UN peacekeeping and how it has included the protection of civilians as a core norm since the late 1990s. And over time, this kind of protection of civilians norm has become more and more institutionalized in the UN context and has become further and further kind of operationalized and defined in more and more detail uh, to make it kind of clear what, what it means, right? And to make the implementation more uniform in a way. So that's the whole point, right? And this is also, I think, an aspiration that was very much present in this kind of earlier constructivist norm scholarship, you know? So the, the more detailed and the more um, refined the norm is, the clearer it is what are the behavioral expectations tied to it. And one of the things that has been coming out of this process is a particular phrase called um, the calls upon um, military contingents in peacekeeping using force to protect civilians under imminent threat of physical violence. I mean, that sounds quite straightforward and it sounds quite clear. Um, but even so, um, we see actually that, and that has come out of my research I did on this, that, that um, different troop contributing countries to peacekeeping and different military contingents have very different ideas of what it means to to protect civilians under imminent threat of physical violence, right? So whether they think that defensive or offensive ways are, are better for that, what kind of military stances they think are, are the best um, response to, um, to protect civilians. So, so um, and I think I don't see these arguments necessarily as a contestation, but just as showcasing different understandings of how to approach this problem of how to best protect civilians. Um, so they are just, for me, simply a product of, of norm ambiguity. And I think what maybe just in some, what, what practice theories then adds to norm scholarship is this conceptual focus on practices that allows us to make implementation as a process analytically approachable and also visible to a certain degree. So, so I think while these practices are not contestation, focusing on them kind of makes us look at implementation in a different way. So they make, a, make a, us look at implementation in a, in a more political, normative fashion, rather than considering it to be a technical process, right? Um, which I think is a very interesting way of looking at things. Uh, thanks for this, Ingrid. Um, my next question aims to zoom into your most recent research. Um, and I prepared these questions uh, before uh, the uh, Russian invasion in Ukraine uh, started. And now I can see that uh, my next question also has to do with uh, what we see um, in this uh, geography in terms of the importance of autonomous weapon system, which is also your uh, ERC uh, research. So my question to you is, um, is the following. Uh, one of the themes that you deal with in your research is a norm emergence and change in the development and de deployment of autonomous weapon system. You have authored and co-authored uh, uh, several article, uh, articles on the topic. And you argue that a legal focus is not sufficient to understand how international norms to regulate the security uh, field are constituted. And your answer is again an engagement with practices. Uh, so my first and rather broad question is, um, what are the primary uh, legal and normative questions in IR regarding the use of autonomous weapon system? And uh, secondly, what does it bring to study practices and uh, whose practices do matter and how? 
Yes, um, I mean, this is something I can talk to uh, you for ages, you know, so so please stop me if, if this continues for too long. <laughs> so uh, let me start with just giving you a brief definition of autonomous weapon system, because maybe not everybody is necessarily um, so, so deeply um, involved in this literature, right? So autonomous weapon systems are basically systems that can track, identify and attack targets with violent force without further human intervention. So we're basically talking about a form of weaponized artificial intelligence. Um, at different levels of sophistication. Um, so put it simply, this is all about how much how much um, do we delegate decision-making on the use of force to machines, right? Um, and I think there are basically two very fundamental um, legal and normative questions arising from this that have also been the subject of many um, different um, studies. So first, can such autonomous weapon systems actually be used in adherence to international law? So is that even possible, right? Um, if we look at the law as it stands now. And the second question is whether uh, these autonomous weapon systems should be used, right? Um, which is more of a normative uh, moral question. So in the first uh, instance, I think um, many key actors such as the International Committee um, of the Red Cross actually agree and argue that retaining human control is necessary to, to adhere to international humanitarian law. So if, if we just completely delegate the use of force to machines, then it will not be possible to act according to international humanitarian law. Uh, and this is, for example, uh, because of um, the fact that adhering to key principles of IHL, such as the principle of distinction, so distinguishing between civilians and combatants, is already difficult for humans, right, and impossible for machines, right, because it kind of requires a very contextual, deliberate human judgment. And there's there's a big debate about other principles of international law and, to, and the extent to which these can be fulfilled through machines. But I think this is kind of one of the most basic ones. And on a more normal, uh, moral and normative level, um, of course, delegating decisions to inflict physical harm or even to kill dehumanizes war in even more fundamental ways than, um, than it is already, of course, always um, um, a cruel and dehuman activity. But I think if we, if we think about um, uh, humans uh, only being perceived as data points, right, uh, rather than as, as, as individual human beings, that adds a completely new level to, um, to war as we know it. Um, so, um, and I should also say that some other authors in IR more, I mean, because I think most of this literature plays out in international legal journals and in kind of philosophy journals, uh, international relations, um, as you would expect, maybe. Um, authors are also very interested in what this means for strategic stability, for the balance of power, these kind of more traditional IR questions, as I would call them. Um, so moving to your second question, why is looking at practices significant in the context of this debate on autonomous weapons and why is law not sufficient? So I think if you look at the debate about this, this has happened um, internationally chiefly at the UN in Geneva. So there we've had since 2017 a process um, of a so-called group of governmental experts who have debated kind of once or twice per year um, whether this actually needs a new international law to regulate uh, autonomous weapon systems um, or, or, we or whether um, existing law is, is sufficient. Um, and what I think is quite curious about this debate, I mean, there are many curiosities about this debate, I should say, um, but one of the things that struck me is that many states talk about weaponizing AI and autonomous weapons as something that is kind of emerging and might be a problem in the future, but it's not really transpired yet. 
So, I mean, this was particularly stark in the first use of the debate when you heard a lot of talk about killer robots and the Terminator, and it has become a bit, it has become a lot more sophisticated, but you still have this kind of tendency that we are dealing with a problem that might be really, really horrible if it comes to pass, but at the moment, it's not a problem yet. Yeah, so we're talking about systems of the future. And I think this is, this is for me, very, very problematic um, because... Um, because if we look at the history of, of how states have used autonomy or automation in weapon systems, this is not a new thing, right? So, so for a long time and for decades, even in some cases, states have integrated various forms of what then might have been called AI into weapons. Um, so if we think about, for example, air defense systems, right? So they, they use certain limited forms of autonomy and automation to identify targets and even to, to fire on these targets. Um, so states use a number of these different systems, and there are also some newer ones, such as loiter munitions, um, counter-drone systems, also cruise missiles, which is also another old system. And, and all of them are setting a certain trajectory uh, for, for what kind of counts as an appropriate level of human control for these weapon systems and the use of force. So that's kind of my main argument then, that we can't really make sense of what is happening in this normative space around how these weapon systems are used and how they might be used in the future if we don't look at this historical trajectory of systems that um, that has started uh, much, much earlier. And I basically conceive of this as practices of designing such systems, of training personnel for using them and of using them, and think about how, in looking at these practices, um, how they are shaping an emerging norm of what counts as appropriate human control. Um, and, and I found so far that, uh, that these kind of operational practices are very important for shaping a kind of a tacit norm of, um, of human control. So that is quite interesting because um, nobody actually says this is the norm of human control, right? Or, or nobody advocates for that uh, necessarily at the UN in Geneva, but it's still there. And sometimes you can see it kind of popping up in, in, in the discourse um, at the debate. So sometimes... Very rarely states refer to kind of their old systems and kind of package them as best practices right, of human control. But if you look more closely at the, um, at the practices themselves, you can see that actually they're very problematic for human control because they, they kind of set um, a low level of human control as the standard uh, for how we should, should understand necessity of human control. So... So in a way, to bring this back to the more analytical side, um, I, I think there's an interesting interaction between this kind of these tacit uh, operational processes as sources of normative content that has not been recognized so far in, in norm research, which tends to focus more on the public part um, and the kind of the, how, how, how states or other actors voice right, certain norms or maybe object to certain norms or try to frame certain norms, right? but there's not so much attention paid to this kind of murky um, tested process that, that has sometimes a much longer duration than the kind of the public process. Uh, thanks, Ingrid, for this very rich contribution uh, to the discussions uh, about uh, IR, uh, the practice theory uh, and norms. I have learned a lot and uh, I also highly recommend our uh, listeners to check uh, Ingrid's uh, other publications. Um, besides uh, her rich contribution empirically and conceptually, Ingrid also has a particular talent in terms of um, 
making a very complex theoretical discussions accessible to a broad uh, uh, public. Um, and therefore, I highly recommend that you check these uh, studies. I mean, practice theory is a very vibrant and uh, inspiring research agenda. And I think in the future, we will be talking about it uh, for some time. Uh, once again, thanks for being with us, Ingrid. Uh, and we wish you lots of success uh, with your ERC project uh, and look forward to um, your um, upcoming publications. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for listening. Please find all information on today's interview guests and hosts in the show notes. Voices, the EISA podcast, is available on all established podcast platforms. If you liked it, subscribe now. Voices, the EISA podcast, feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible.